I am Tony Ganser. I'm uh, the afternoon host at WCPN uh, Public Radio. And I say this at the beginning of every uh, event, but uh, your participation really is important. And um, we'll have a time for your questions and comments. So if there's something we don't get to and you want to get to it, there will be a time for you at the end. So I'd like to start actually by having our panelists introduce themselves just briefly. Um, me Rose. Thank you, Tony. I'm Mi Rose Huang. I'm Associate Professor of Asian History and World History at Hiram College uh, down the road from here. Um, I, louder? I, uh, I have a specialty in early 20th century East Asia that would be in China, Japan, and Korea, um, mostly uh, pre-World War II. Um, but in the last several years, I've shifted my direction and focus to looking at uh, the inter-Korean relations um, from 1945 onward. And so um, part of what I will bring to the table today will be a conversation about that history. Stephen? Yeah, my name is uh, Stephen Hook. I'm at Kent State University. Um, I've been here for about uh, 20 years or something like that. My focus is on American foreign policy, not so much each country, but just what happens within the United States, um, the, the problems within the United States. And I've, I've been doing that for quite a long time. And I appreciate that, that uh, you allowed me to come. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I said this on social media that this was going to be my first question, so I'll open it up to both panelists. But okay. Stephen, if you want to take it first, uh, what the heck is going on? Uh, <laughs> because you know we had wall-to-wall -wall cable news coverage from North Korea. We've got a lot of bluster and rhetoric, but what really happened? Do we know? Well, we have a president now who's going in different directions, and. Uh, so we don't really know what's going to happen right now. But, you know, you have a, we, you have a country that's been there. You know, you, you all know that uh, in 19, between 1950 and 1953, you had that, that war. And then you had no real peace, peace treaty. So North Korea kind of gets connected to China. China has been supporting North Korea for a long time, I think. The Chinese are getting tired of North Korea, to be honest. Um, it's really not helping for the Chinese to get involved with the North Korea situation. But uh, it's going to stay. It's, it's going to stay the way it is now. Uh, we can talk about this. All of this discussion about you know, do, nu uh, do nuclearization and Cor Corin Korean Peninsula, the, that, that region, the Korean Peninsula, uh, that's, that's still there. But as you know, in between, you have the United States coming in in the 1950s to create that whole, the, the, what the United States has done to kind of more like a, a, a democracy, a, a, an economic system. So that's going very well. But I think because China is involved and it's 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 actually they're kind of tired of it. But there's a there's a use for North Korea for the Chinese, and so you have those things going on at the same time. Um, I don't think anytime soon your North Korea is going to go away. We can talk about that, uh, but I'll, I'll take it to you. 
Yeah, me, Rose. So we, we hear a lot of rhetoric. We, we heard the U.S. is going to stop military uh, war games, and that was kind of a peace offering, I guess, to North Korea. And a lot of people were complaining, well, North Korea didn't give anything up. So I, are, is everything just the same from before the summit, or, or did anything substantial change, in your view, uh, in the situation of a, of a nuclear North Korea? Uh, well, some, although practical things haven't actually uh, manifested on the ground just yet, I think there have been some really important gestures that have been made. And if you're situated in the Koreas or anywhere in, in the region, um, you would have experienced some really dramatic shifts that have happened just in this past year. So in half of a year, we've gone from uh, feeling like we were going to be on the brink of war uh, nuclear war to feeling like there was promise of a possible peace treaty that has never been signed. Like for 65 years, we haven't signed a peace treaty. Um, so that's a really drastic change. At least for the people in a East Asia, this drastic change has been uh, really uh, pal uh, palpable. Um, for us here in the United States, I think there's a lot of confusion because there have been drastic shifts that have been made within the Trump administration just in the past few weeks, um, much less in the past half year, um, from the time when Trump visited uh, North Korea or Singapore with uh, Kim Jong-un um, last a few weeks ago to Mark, Mike Pompeo's visit just last weekend, um, there's been a dramatic shift. And so um, where we see um, this heading is, I think, still yet to be seen. There's a lot of rhetoric from the Trump administration about this being unprecedented, it's historic, it's amazing, it's the greatest thing. Um, can you talk about what has been done before? Was this really uh, out of the blue, something you know, totally new? We've never seen it before. The one unprecedented thing is that the first sitting United States president has visited North Korea. That has not happened to date mm -hmm. until Trump. Mm -hmm. And so I think he wanted to make this a landmark moment for himself. Um, so it is historical in that sense. Previous to him, since the 1990s up until now, so we're talking about only three, four presidential administrations, um, we have had other high-level figures visit North Korea, but never a sitting president. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is, I think, really monumental and is different. Um, one of the other big differences I'd say that came out of this was that the, on the United States side, they did agree to um, seizing the joint military exercises uh, with South Korea. Mm -hmm. That request has been made in previous visits, but that has never actually been agreed upon until now. So those are two things that I can see that are other major differences. The other talks about nuclear deproliferation, um, those, t those types of talks have, um, are familiar. Um, and the other aspects of the, the four points in the agreement, I think, are familiar to us. Yeah. Stephen, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I, I would say that um, a lot of things have changed. Um, I think with President Trump, um, he, 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 there, there was a major shift, you know, to, 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 to go uh, into, uh, in, uh, in Singapore and have that, Discussion. I think, and I don't think it was a. T to be honest, I, I don't think it was a really serious project. Okay, there were they, uh, the people that were in in the United States, the people in the Pentagon, 
they weren't really there. They're a few people. And everybody got very excited when that happened, when on April 27, or, or actually it was uh, um, <clears throat> May 26. Um, they met with uh, Kong Janun, and he comes there. Trump is there. It's a historic moment, but uh, I think that we have a lot where, where to go. And I'm, I'm afraid that what's happening with North, North Korea right now, the, the, the leader there needs to be, in his view, he needs to be there. The, he he con controls that place. The Chinese are kind of watching, but they're not doing very much. And the idea of getting rid of uh, all the all the the, nucle the nuclear process, uh, I think it's going to take some time. Right now, I think for, with President Trump, I think he was just saying this is going to happen. This is great, but it just doesn't happen overnight. Something like this takes years and years. It'd be great if they would happen. I'm afraid it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, but I thought it was interesting also, on April 27, 17, President Kim Jong-un and South Korean President Moon Jae-in, uh, they got together and they had their own discussion about demilitarizing the zone uh, in, the, in the dividing zone. So, so they're, they're working their own place. So it's not just what the United States is doing. It, you, have, uh, you have a lot of countries right now that are involved with this. You have the Chinese, South Korea, Japan is a major factor. I'd like to talk about the Japanese. So you have, you're right, there, there's a lot of things going on at the same time. But I, I, I wish that the United States could be a little more serious about going through this, to well, be honest with you. I, you know, I was watching CNN, and Dennis Rodman was there wearing a shirt for Potcoin, um, this cryptocurrency to support the marijuana industry. And he's talking about how, you know, he, he was one of the great diplomats, and nobody believed in him. And the thing is, he did have certain access to Kim Jong-un. And... That's the world we're in right now. So when you say, you know, the Pentagon wasn't involved, that's right, but Dennis Rodman was involved, and the U.S. president still went after Dennis Rodman. Um, do the old rules apply, me, Rose? I mean, or are we just kind of, we don't know what's going on, you know? Um. I don't know what the old rules were with North Korea um, because we've only established any kind of relationship in, with North Korea since the early 1990s, and so it's still very new mm -hmm. for us. Um, mm -hmm. I think the Dennis Rodman uh, situation is really interesting to me. It, it's, it's weird, but it's, it's also <laughs> uh, very interesting because, I mean, it's a public, um, it's a PR opportunity, right? Uh, for North Korea and the rest of the world. Um, and it really does show that the North Korean um, um, heads of state um, want to capitalize on this uh, symbolic gesture that they are very much interested in American culture. Um, that they have, they are, they're just as fanatical about the NBA 
and um, in American sports culture and uh, pop culture as we are here. Um, and if that's the only avenue in which they can actually have an in with us, I think they'll take it. Yeah. I, I don't think it's codified policy, but just to say about the old rules, I always kind of felt it was transactional, that before we would give North Korea anything, even attention, they would have to give us something, be it hostages, which were taken for whatever reason, mostly just a bargaining chip to get attention, um, or talking about military exercises or sanctions or what have you. And that was a big critique of this particular summit, that something was given to North Korea, a great prize, tons of footage for propaganda videos, if they choose to use it for that, but what did America, what did the rest of the world get for that? So that's kind of what I was thinking in terms of are, is that totally out the window now, those rules, uh, that basis? Any thoughts? I, I, I just don't think there's much of a change. This, not a, you know, Rodman, you know, people were watching Rodman, and it was, it was fun, and, you know, and everybody's thinking this is going to change. But in North Korea, you know, you have to understand what, what, what the, 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 the lives in North Korea is horrible okay so it's about not about rodman it's about the the people there and there's something like 10 10,000 or 20,000 people who are set are, are killed every year in north korea it's a very very serious place people can't get in there people can't come back uh, it's a very terrible place and so now we have that the, the new leader you know, he seems to be Kong Jong Un. He 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 appears to be somebody who, you know, he he looks good. He seems like he's a good guy. You know, especially with Trump. To um, some people. To yeah, some people. Yeah. yeah, but some of that is just a show. Okay, it's a terrible country right now, and I, you know, whether they can deal with a nuclear situation or not. There's no government in that country. It's a really difficult place there. And we have to be careful not to think of this as a, you know, an easy thing to be done. Yeah. Me, Rose, yeah. Well, if you look at the news feed from when Trump went to the summit to when Pompeo uh, had just come back, there, um, you see that Trump had to do a, a bit Hello. of backstepping uh, because there was so much criticism about uh, there not being any teeth to the agreements that they had made with North Korea. And as you said, Tony, that uh, we gave and we didn't get anything back and there are no promises. Well, that's absolutely true. And then we see Trump also saying, going, going from this was incredibly successful to we have a lot of work to do. Um, going from we are, uh, we are now in a peace process to uh, we are still in a very dangerous situation with North Korea. Right. Um, and so there, there's been some backstepping. And I think Pompeo went in there to actually try to rectify this and, and actually put some traction to the agreement that was, that was originally lined out with, uh, with Trump. And so it's still early days. I think that there may be something that comes out of this because Pompeo has promised to actually go back and, and have some further meetings with uh, with perhaps with Kim Jong-un, but um, certainly with the heads of uh, the military um, in North Korea. And so we'll see what happens. 
Another criticism, obviously, was not mentioning human rights violations right. uh, and, and kind of maintaining, quote unquote, Western norms and Western values in any discussion with that regime. Uh, I'd like to point uh, something out and maybe have you respond to it. Uh, I think we're all aware of the art of the deal, uh, Donald Trump's book. And if you apply some of those principles of the art of the deal to the nuclear conversation and, and discussion, it's really interesting. One of the steps of the deal is to think big. Uh, there are plenty of big ideas. You know, some of them may work, some of them may not. The second one, though, protect the downside, and the upside will take care of itself. Um, if there is zero expectation uh, from Donald Trump doing something, and you say you don't think anything has changed, Stephen, then there's no downside, really, because nobody thinks he's going to get anything out of it, right? So he can just spend as much time, as much resources trying to get a big win uh, because nobody expects anything else. Yeah, I, um, I, yeah, but I, th I think uh, Kim Jong-un, he's the leader, and he, he needs the nuclear uh, he, he needs the, nu the nukes, okay? That's the one thing that he can have. If those go away, what's going to be left? Now, could it maybe there'll be a new t time where there's coming closer to South Korea and what's going on in terms of economics and maybe even some democracy, but that's just not going to happen soon, okay? So he, the only thing really has is the nuclear possibilities you know so he so he the the, the nukes are really all he has that's and his leverage right that, in any his, conversation that's his leverage but it's the it's really the only thing that he has and in light of iran um, and the Iran nuclear deal being scrapped by the Trump administration, uh, is there no incentive even, even if Kim Jong-un was an honest broker and he wanted to give up his nukes to get something in return, yeah, yeah. he wanted to make a grand bargain. Mm -hmm. In light of Iran, um, are we trustworthy? Are we a trustworthy uh, broker? Just real, real quick, just for, Iran is, is still there, okay? The, uh, the Trump got rid of what he's doing, but the the U, the, UO, the EO, the the uh, all the other countries in the EO in the EU, the EU and other other countries, they're still focusing on Iran. Iran wants to be more of a, a normal country. Um, our president doesn't like him at all, so he just got out. But in the EU and a lot of other re regions, uh, it's still there. They're scrambling to keep it together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I, I think they're doing they're they're going further than they have. Okay, because they want to have a, a decent economic system. They want pe They would like to have the, the Iranian the Iranian people to come to the EU to the United States. You know, for a long time, Iran has been a country that we. We liked, and it, we, it worked with us. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that's just, just because Trump, just, just become Trump got, got out of it doesn't mean the EU and the other countries are not involved. Yeah, so go ahead. I think pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal um, offered a surprising but um, opportunistic moment for North Korea because they were able to then say, um, if 
we feel that the United States can't keep its bargain here, we will still be the, the country that comes in and, and trusts the United States. Um, so I think they picked that moment right after that deal was broke broken to invite Trump to come to North Korea. I don't know if you remember the timeline, but it, I don't think it was a coincidence that it happened that way. Do you think it, it, they were trying to make it look like they had the moral high ground? Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. 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 I wonder if we can zoom out for a bit. We've been talking a lot about current events and the current situation, but Miros, can you talk about more how we got to this point. How did we get to the Kim dynasty uh, as we know it? You know, origin stories about riding magical horses aside, how did we actually get North Korea as we know it today? That's a big question. <clears throat> um, so you wanna, if you wanna um, go through the, the very beginnings of that history, um, it really happened right after 1945, after the surrender of the Japanese. The same day that Emperor Hirohito um, announced his surrender over the radio, August 15, 1945, the United States military government in Korea had been already um, on the ground, and they used that same day to announce that the 38th Global Latitudinal Line would temporarily separate a northern to southern Korea. Mm. And so that was, um, that was a really important moment that kind of started things going in these two very kind of binary directions uh, between the north and the south. Um, we didn't have a head of state chosen at that point, but within two years of that, we had Sigmund Rhee in the south and Kim Il-sung in the north. Sigmund Rhee was handpicked, um, many people say, by uh, the United States military government. Um, and in the north, uh, uh, also the same thing with the Soviet Union and China coming in to say Kim Il-sung was going to be their man. Um, but the elections happened in May of 1948 uh, in South Korea. And then soon thereafter, within a couple of weeks, we had elections in the north uh, to establish those two heads of state. Um, so in North Korea, they saw themselves as, a, as the only legitimate nation of Korea. Mm. Um, at the same time, we were seeing, seeing this happening in South Korea. Um, and in the North, it was really established as a way to say that um, they, were, they were part of the, the international, the common turn, uh, under the umbrella of the Soviet Union. But they were also um, there to establish a kind of indigenous interests on the peninsula. So part of their constitution from the very beginning was to say that they were going to forward and, um, and prioritize the reunification of the Korean Peninsula. That was never mentioned in the founding of the South Korean constitution. So you see a, a, a distinct difference between the North and South, and Kim Il-sung always pushed for that, the first administration. Is that still a priority? That is still, yes, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah, still a part of the Constitution. Um, several amendments have been made, but that has not changed, hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, p many people call it a Kim dynasty because his son then took over after he passed away, and then now we have Kim Jong-un, the, the grandson. Um, and certainly that, that is true, and I think that that's probably not far from the way that North Koreans see the, the ruling family, um, but that's the short of it. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen, you mentioned before kind of, um, you know, regional politics, especially with China and Japan, that uh, North Korea is a, is a great threat. We see that in the United States. But 
you know, there's artillery and missiles pointed at Seoul. Uh, they're within range of Japan, mm -hmm. and uh, it's in China's best interest to keep that Western influence away from its borders, to where if there is a reunification and the strength of South Korea takes over, mm -hmm. uh, well, then a, a U.S. ally is knocking on the door. Um, do you think that even if the U.S. government wanted to take it seriously, if the Pentagon wanted to take it seriously, are we equipped for that? Can we, can we put forward our interest with all of those threats and competing interests in, in that region, do you think? Or? Well, <clears throat> um, you know, it, it's all coming up. It's coming down to economics, okay? It's not so much these big threats of, of war and right now. You have China, South Korea, Japan, you know, uh, the, Chinese, the, the Chinese have a, a very, you know, amazing economic system right now, in some respects stronger than the United States. South Korea is very strong. Uh, Japan is very interesting because Japan has kind of uh, run, run what, what's going on in in, in that region, and uh, so the, the Jap Japanese are also concerned about their economic situation right now. It's, it's much smaller, they have their own problems, but it's really more about economics rather than, this, you know, we're talking about war, we're talking about, you know, what's going on with nuclear weapons, but it's really, the question is gonna be, what can they do in North Korea uh, to have kind of a, an, an economy of its own? Because there's really no economic system right now in North Korea. So if, if they can work that out, if they can bring North Korea to allow to have a, 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 a serious economic system and have even people you know, from South Korea and, and working with them, that's probably the way out. Okay, it's not just whether or not that we have nuclear, the, the nuclear problem, but it, what, what, the, what the people in, in North Korea want, they want an economic system. They want, you know, to have homes. They want to have, you know, they have, uh, they want to have good schools, you know. And if, in, you were talking about Rogman, you know, and people are saying it's funny about Rogman, but if you can get what you know the uh, the American system, if I may say, if that can come in a little bit, and North Korea would benefit from that, and you start to see that over you know over overseas, pe people now c can un understand they can listen to the radio and on TV and uh, you know uh, all over the world, they're they're listening even in North Korea. So if that can move forward, then that's the way out, okay? To, to bring the people in North Korea to have a, a, a serious you know, country where they could actually have years and years of growth. And that's gonna be something that, I think that Trump is looking at, he's, he's looking at that, and, uh, uh, and that's something that might take time, but that's gonna be the way out, I think. This may be an aside, but I wonder if, if either of you would comment on this. You know, with all of the attention on tariffs and counter-tariffs, with attention on 
alienating allies. Um, I wonder if even, even if the likelihood of Donald Trump closing a deal is, is small, um, the fact that we're alienating allies, but also there are bilateral conversations and multilateral conversations without the United States taking place, are, are we falling far behind from being a, being a broker, being a player um, in any real sense? Uh, Miros, do you have thoughts first, maybe? Um, militarily, no. Um, United States is still the, the strongest powerhouse militarily. Um, and I think that that is, it's interesting that I just heard on the radio this morning um, about how Trump was trying to get um, these other countries to, to push forward with their own uh, military spending um, to do, um, to, to put less of our, our money into NATO. Uh, yeah. yeah, into NATO. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, I think that, that prioritization is something that we all, I mean, we all were thinking about as well, but there's no, there's no question that um, they are the biggest stakeholders uh, militarily. Um, and that's where I think North Korea and the United States um, kind of resonate as the, the two most important people in this negotiation process. Um, the China is, China is in there, but I don't think that there is, um, you know, any discussions that the NATO or EU or any of these other ASEAN, if you will, have on their own without the United States still have to take the United States into consideration, um, if, if for nothing else, uh, for international and national security issues. Yeah, but even dropping out of TPP, for example, yeah. Trans-Pacific Partnership, yeah. we kind of extricated ourselves out of there, right? Right. Yeah, if, if, um, that's true. Yeah. And they're, now they're talking about getting back in. You know, and what, what's happening in the United States, as you know, is uh, the United States now is really pulling away from a lot of the world, you know, issues, you know, and Americans now are looking inward, you know, what is wrong with the United States, uh, you know, and you have a kind of a small core, uh, the, the people who are supporting President Trump. You know, and they really don't care. They they don't care about what's going on in Africa, what's going on in Af in uh, the far far east. You know, and anywhere in the world, they just care about what's going on within the United States, and that opens the door for the EU and other countries, and also to uh, to you know in Af in uh, in. China, South, South Korea, Japan, those countries are, you know, and that's, so now, now you have more and more countries who are, have a lot more, um, you know, un understanding about what they can do now, you know, even with the tariffs, you know, with the tariffs that are going on now, it opens the door for the Chinese and for other countries, and even, even uh, Japan, South Korea, China, so we kind of lost it. We've kind of lost it. I mean, it's good. It's good for Americans to look inward, you know, to see how the country's not. The country right now, the people are not. They don't feel like they're one country right now. 
And that's a, that's a problem. That's a problem right now, and that's something that we have to care about. But we also have to, you know, came in mind, came in mind what's happening around the world. And that's, that's, that's what I'm not seeing anymore. You know, with, even with Trump, uh, I mean, Trump seems to be the only one who's involved with foreign policy these days. And that's kind of dangerous, if you ask me. And so I, I think it's, I think it'd be a good thing that we were looking inward, but also make sure we know what's going on in the world right now. The NATO and the EU countries have kind of moved away, you know, and they, they, they don't really rut, they, they don't uh, feel like the United States is serious right now. And that's the major problem, you know, inward, but all of a sudden we, we're not paying attention to these other countries that are even more important uh, over, over up there on the world. Me, Rose? Um, that's a really great question, Tony. Um, I was expecting North Korea to leverage the the upsets that, he, that the Trump administration and their tariffs have posed on other countries with those countries trying mm -hmm. to negotiate with them. But that, not, that really hasn't been done. Right. Um, uh, maybe it will happen, but, um, and certainly a lot of uh, kind of diplomatic activities have occurred in East Asia between North Korea and, and other countries, um, but not really, ex it has not extended as far as the EU or uh, NATO, um, outside of Venezuela, I suppose, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to open it up for your questions. If you have questions or comments, feel free to come forward to this microphone, and uh, our panel will handily deal with it. Um, and while people are, are coming forward, I wonder uh, if both of you can just comment, do you think this summit and the direction we're going in, are we in a net positive or a net negative? Which, which way, or is it just too nuanced and too, too crazy to even judge it that way? Stephen, maybe well, first. It, it depends on what you're talking about a summit. You know? The word summit, everybody's talking about a summit, but there's a summit uh, you know, uh, with, with Trump, but there was, a, there was also a summit um, with, you know, in, like I said, 2017, when President Kim Jong-un met with South Korean, South, South Korea, and you know they had, they had that discussion that denuclearization is prop, prop, okay that that it's not just the getting rid of out the the nuclear things. It's to have um, these other the other the other countries being. Involved. So, know. so the trend line then of communicating with North Korea mm -hmm. is that a net positive? Do you think just opening lines of communication? We're not talking so much about ballistic missile right. tests right. and uh, uh, nuclear tests underground, but now we're talking about you know who's who's talking to whom really. Mm -hmm. Is is that a positive trend line in the, your view? I think, of, of course, it's very positive. As, as, long, as long as people are talking to each other, that's, that's good, you know? And, you know, it's with all of the, you know, the, our, our kids these days, the, you know, with the, they're, they're following what's going on. And so it's become a world that everybody's kind of watching what's going on now. We might not like what they're saying, but you know, it's not. It's no longer that we're in different regions or different parts of the world, and that's all. That's always good. Me, Rose. Yeah. 
I have to say, I'm also an optimist, so I'd say it's a net positive. But what's really one of the things that reminds me of that, I was, I was looking at the different polls that were taken, uh, surveys of kind of feeling out the temperature in the United States whenever a high U.S. figure went to visit North Korea, how Americans felt about it. And it seems like the trend is, generally speaking, that most Americans dislike it. They yeah. don't want to have you know, this possibility of negotiation. That might be changing, I think, with this recent turn of events. And so mm. I think more people are feeling either ambivalent about it or that there might be a possibility that something might happen positively from it. And I'm going to go with that. Interesting. Uh, first question, please. Yep. Yes, I had brought this up earlier in a conversation with uh, Moroz, but um, I'm, I'm thinking, do you, th both of you, do you think that Trump is in a good advantage in this as a conservative? Because he could give, he could give away stuff that a liberal could never get away with. So is he in a good bargaining position? Because people, if, like what I'm trying to say is, if um, a liberal had uh, said we will stop these exercises, this person would have been accused of recklessness. But with Trump, he could be perceived as a man of wisdom and restraint. <laughs> it's, all, it's all yours. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to repeat the last couple of words you said there, uh, Michael, but uh, that is a really interesting question. I, I think that Trump being a red herring in terms of not being a, a, a career politician um, did present certain interesting opportunities for North Korea. Um, and so. That might be the reason that he took the bait and said, yeah, I will go to North Korea. Um, and he, he likes, it seems like he likes working with uh, people one-on-one. -on -one. His negotiation skills are really good when it's behind closed doors and it's kind of person-to-person, heart-to-heart, and where they get to share warm and fuzzy thoughts. Um, and so that might be something very, very particular to Trump. Um, I'm not sure if that would have happened with a more polished politician. Um, things might have happen very differently. I, in fact, I think that if a, um, if a, if a more traditional career politician uh, might have been here now, this summit probably would not have happened the way that it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, if, if I may say, I think what bothers me is that, you know, we have the Republicans <clears throat> right now, they, they control the, the government right now, you know, and so all of a sudden the Republicans are in control. And that's, I think that's very difficult right now because if we have President Trump running it, the, the country, and all the Republicans are following the president, um, then we don't have a full uh, government right now. We're, we're, being caught, we're, we're being cut out. So what we have to do is have the, the government kind of come, come together rather than just have the Republicans and President Trump running the country right now. And that's, that's something we, well, we have, some, you know, this is, we have some uh, uh, things coming up in the next few months. We're going to see what happens. Um, but right now, it's not, it's, it's only Trump and the Republicans who are running the country right now. And that, that, that's the dangerous when, even when you're talking about American foreign policy and what we're doing in our foreign policy, we're not really following that anymore. It's pe people aren't following what's going on within the country in the Pentagon and what's going on there. So we have to, we have to get 
into that area as well as what's going on around the world. Mm -hmm. Next question. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much to both of you. And my question is for May Rose primarily, and I'm just thrilled to have a historian here. Um, so if for a second, we've talked a lot about U.S. foreign policy towards the region, but for a second, let's set aside the United States and our interests there. And I am wondering if when you look at the history of the two Koreas, if there's new developments in the history of those two countries and the trajectories that they're both on that seem to have gone this way, what are things that you've been seeing recently that um, give you clues to what may happen next in their bilateral relationship? Thank you for that question. Uh, so the, the meeting between Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, and the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, happened, um, actually, just offering a correction, it happened in the early spring of this year. Um, that, prior to that, if we look at the recent North Korean, um, I'm sorry, recent South Korean Olympics, um, those Olympics where, we, where Moon Jae-in decided he was going to fly a united flag for the North Korean um, hockey team with South Korea, um, when that happened and the theme around uh, unification and peace in the peninsula, all of those um, ceremonial pomp, uh, pomp happened, um, the South Korean president was incredibly unpopular. He had like record low popularity rates. Um, and so that kind of tells you what a lot of South Koreans felt about this situation. But you also have to think about what was happening between the United States and North Korea at the time. Um, it looked like we were going to go to war. Um, and so people thought that Moon Jae-in was being foolish and um, too uh, optimistic in this idea that they were going to have foreign peace just through games. Um, but then in April, when they actually met and they discussed the possibilities of signing a peace treaty to actually formally end the, the Korean War and talk about um, reopening the possibility of reunifying families, um, and those types of discussions were made, then suddenly uh, Moon Jae-in's popularity rates soared up to like 80% in South Korea. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the feeling there seems to be that they are, um, they are in line with what's happening now, but it, it really is, unfortunately, really contingent on what's happening with the United States because the United States is the most important ally to South Korea. So we can't take that out of the picture. Right. Um, but at the same time, what's interesting, and I think that Steve mentioned this already, the fact that the, the, we have inter-Korean talks um, two months before Trump meets with North Korea um, is really interesting because Moon Jae-in was 100% for the, the, that talk to happen with, with Trump. And um, I think that really that paved the path for certain kinds of other negotiations to happen as well. Um, and so generally speaking, I think, and I told some other people this in another talk, um, right now Trump's approval ratings in South Korea are much higher than they are in the United States. <laughs> and so that kind of tells you how South Koreans are feeling about, the, about these negotiation process, processes. Um, but if you were to ask South Koreans about what they think of reunification, uh, questions like that, um, there seems to be a lot more divide, division in the way people think. Some of it may be a generational divide. So uh, people in their 20s uh, are mostly opposed to it. 
people in their 40s um, who have lived through the dem democratization process in the 80s. Um, they are mostly for it. And then people who uh, remember the Korean War, again, they're opposed mm -hmm. to it. So we have generational differences in that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Next question. Okay. First, I believe you have to go back to 1904, 1905, to the end of the Russo-Japanese War, and the hatred between the Koreans and the Japanese. I had Korean friends at church that absolutely hate the Japanese, older than me, that what happened. But I believe Trump has all of the cards in the deck, and how he decides to play them. First, Iraq deal. That's a treaty. I'll send it to the Senate. You want to see the EU panic? He can promise Mr. Uh, what, Kim of North Korea, I will submit it as a treaty to the Senate and support it. A fad system in South Korea, Japan. Oh, Japan and North Korea? Or Japan and South Korea? You can develop nuclear weapons. We're going to put a fad system in Vietnam. And the ultimate card is Taiwan. We'll put a FAD system in Taiwan and U.S. military. Oh, by the way, you are going to take out all of your military bases on the island. The one card China's afraid of is 10 million economic refugees. And there's nothing they can do about that. Would, would you please comment about my uh, theory of what's going on? Thank you. Steve, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not clear how we respond to that because mm -hmm. it's you're talking about Taiwan. Well, everything. Yeah. Ch the last thing China wants is 10 million economic refugees. Mm -hmm. They will do anything to stop that. Yeah. I, anything. Right. Right. <coughs> and and that's something that uh, we don't we don't know, know how how to handle that. You know, it's it's very difficult when you have different countries and different people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, again, I also want to thank the panelists. I think the topic's really interesting. Um, I wanted to get your feedback on a couple things. One is, um, first of all, the, the Dennis Rodman um, episode. I don't think it's unusual, right? We've had instances where totalitarian regimes have welcomed movie Hollywood stars. In the 1950s, Elizabeth Taylor went to the Soviet Union. We had Sean Penn go to Venezuela. Um, so, so it's, it's not that unusual. So I, I, um, I'm wondering if this is sort of in, the, in that line. Um, I don't know much about the, the Korean Peninsula, but I, I studied Germany. And I, um, the one thing that I'm sort of optimistic by is that um, before the unification of, of Germany's, no expert predicted that it would happen. In fact, they were vehement. The uh, political scientists, economists, political economists were vehement that the Soviet Union would exist forever and the division would, would always continue. And I feel like that alone tells me that we don't know all the answers and, and that in Korea it might be different. And I guess I'm, one thing that is, makes me optimistic about the Korean Peninsula, and I'm wondering if, if you can tell me I'm wrong, and that is that um, it does seem like the North Korea would like to enter into the 21st century, that, that there is some interest, and, and maybe it's social media, maybe that the world has changed in some ways, um, maybe they're looking at China and seeing a model of authoritarianism that can take them, that can retain their power, uh, and yet take them into the 21st century, right? So we see in China this model of, of a totalitarian regime, but yet adopting market uh, principles. So I'm wondering, 
I guess I'm asking you if you could reflect, we've talked a lot about South Korea, but I'm interested in, in North Korea. How has, have there been changes within North Korean society that makes me, that makes this theory uh, hold some water, that there's some openness or some understanding within North Korea that's different than may, maybe a, a generation ago? Hmm. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Castle, and happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> so um, that's a great question. I think that Kim Jong-un is, is trying to be different than his two previous, um, the previous leaders, his father and his grandfather. Um, uh, so one of the, the major points under Kim Jong-il, his father, who passed away in 2000, he um, was that his father was trying to really maintain the Kim Il-sungism, which you know is the indigenization of the Communist Party in North Korea. And Kim Jong-un has definitely strayed from that a bit. Um, one of the things that I think that feeds into that is the shift in China um, to a what they call a post-socialist process of privatization and, uh, and decentralization of their economy. Um, and we see that that's worked um, favorably in their, in the, for, their, for their GDP in China, and I'm talking to your PRC. Um, but if you look at the North Korean um, kind of uh, high-level rhetoric uh, around China and other countries that it, it sees as its closest allies, it actually uh, finds more affinity with places like Vietnam. It thinks that Vietnam is a model socialist society and that China has somehow strayed away from the, uh, the kind of ideals of socialism. And so I don't know if it would necessarily look at China as a model of its own future, but rather um, consider what Vietnam might have done to modernize in ways that North Korea could actually try to follow. Can, can I follow up? Just sure, quick. Um, very quick. I remember when the, the Cold War ended. <clears throat> okay. You all remember the Cold War. And at the end of the Cold War, you know, uh, that period when they opened up the, the Cold War and people it, on on the eastern side, they, for once, they could see what's going on in the in the West, right? In in the West, so people, all of a sudden, in the in the in the East, could come into the West and see what the West really looks like. Okay, and now, with with North Korea, the more that the people in the North Korea, the more that they get exposed to what's happening in the world, and more and more, they can read, they can watch, they can see what's going on in the world, um, then you're going to have a chance for uh, the whole region to come together, you know, once they can understand what's going on in, in that region. I think there's one more question. One question, yeah. yeah just, um, so it's a sort of a two-part question. I mean, one is that um, I got the concern that, that part of what went on with the negotiations between Kim and Trump is that um, Trump has a lot riding on this in terms of his personal esteem for himself and his sense of accomplishment. And I think for me, knowing very little about the Korean Peninsula, one of the concerning things about watching this process is, is just thinking that these are two world leaders who are so focused on their own egos and so different from sort of other world leaders who are 
um, bigger picture thinkers and thinking more about the well-being of the world or the well-being at least of their own citizenry. And I think that the sort of personal megalomania of these two leaders, I just wondered if either or both of you could comment a little bit about that. Thank you. Do you want to take it? I mean, everybody has egos, and I, you know, both both of them are all all of they have that ego, um, and that's the pro. And this is this is the problem when you have one person running it, you know. And so, what we what we need to have is the like our, our government being much more up running the country, not one person saying something. You know, and that's that's a problem. I think our president just likes to get a lot of attention, and all of a sudden we don't know what's going on in Washington. Certainly, we see that's what we see on the face of the media um, are these two uh, big men kind of leading the show. But I, I think in the same way that we wouldn't say Trump holds all the cards or that he's the ringleader for the United States government. I don't know if we can necessarily wash our hands of North Korea in the same way. Um, with North Korea, they're, they're, so different, different uh, theorists have different opinions about this. So some people believe that there's a kind of corporatism uh, governmental corporatism that exists in North Korea where we have uh, the figurehead actually represented by the Kim family. And then there are different bodies of the government that do different, very, very different things and are somewhat autonomous from each other but also are very intric intricately tied. Um, and then there are other people that believe that there's a kind of Confucian style of leadership um, where we have a kind of oligarchy that that lead from behind and Trump or, and Kim Jong-un and his uh, predecessors were really just figureheads. Um, so there are different models of thinking about North Korean government, and people have had different levels of access to government to see those um, theories through. Um, but I, I myself would probably not believe that he's the one leading the show. Um, that doesn't make as much sense to me because we're really still talking about 20 million population. Um, and it's really difficult for one person to be, you know, like God in that way. Although, I think in the rhetoric, that's what, it, you know, what is being said. And um, in some ways, that's what we see and that's what we believe. As a uh, final question, maybe if each of you can offer us something to keep in mind. As we hear rhetoric, as we see the, the pomp uh, on television and in propaganda, what is something tangible we should be looking for to know whether or not we're still on that positive trajectory? Is it a return to ballistic missile tests? Is it, you know, some sort of uh, international inspections being agreed to? Is it a human rights declaration from North Korea? Maybe offer us something tangible to look for as we're hearing news and trying to discern what is real, what is theater. I think this is a really, really exciting time. I'm so, I'm so excited by this moment that we're in right now because there, there is such interesting information coming out of, um, of various media sources now that I have not seen in decades past. Um, and so I think I, I beg us to 
to read the news really carefully um, because there is some bit gems, bits of really interesting information coming out of the media now. We're thinking more deeply about uh, the North Korean system. Um, and we have access to that. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, I think it was uh, July 6th, uh, the Library of Congress had just opened and released a digitized, a digitized North Korean archives. And so all, of our, all the archives that the, the Library of Congress has, I think it's up to something like 10 million different sources on North Korea have just been digitally released to us. And so we have access to this information from 1945 to now. Um, and we have several different sources like that online. The Wilson Center in DC also is a fabulous source uh, for current media coming out of North Korea. And so we can read these things. They're in translation. Uh, much of it is in translation for us in English. And so you have the ability to see up front and make decisions, inform decisions on what's going on there um, in ways that we have never been able to do before. It's mm, great. Nice. Steve? Um, final thought? My, my, really? <laughs> Uh, I can't talk anymore. Uh, no, but I'm just re I'm I'm reflecting on my classes. I've, I've been teaching for a long time, and uh, I've discovered just in this in this in, in the last year, I found that my classes got have gotten much more excited beca because of what's going on right now. They're they're very serious about what's going on. Um, they. My last class, my, I had something like 30, 30 students. Now I have 45 students. My classes are getting larger because they're following this. And they, they know this is a, a time that we will probably remember what's going on. So they, they take my American foreign policy class, and they, they, they actually like a class that I teach. You know, <laughs> And they also like my political theory class. What the hell is that? I mean, that you never you never see that. So I, I think the students that I've seen in the last year are much more uh, excited about what's going on at home, but also around the world. They're they're really following what's going on much more than I've ever seen. So even if people get scared uh, what's going on around the world, I'm, I I get nervous, you know. Um, but it seems like this is a time where people are listening. I'm talking about 10, 10 you know, pe people 20, 30, 40, all, all ages. They're, they're following what's going on, and that, that's good. And so, you know, I, I think it's something we can all uh, go, go away and feel a little better, believe it or not. <laughs> in the classroom, out of the classroom, in a pub, wherever you are. Keep learning. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you to the panel.